Hello and welcome to our podcast series on the evolution and importance of sports psychology. This is our first of several podcasts on this topic uh, and we're excited to be with you today. I want to introduce who we are. Uh, first, my name is Dr. Stacy Hall. I'm an associate professor of business at Trip McConnell University and have over 30 years of experience working in the sport industry and a variety of different roles. Uh, I've worked in youth sports, high school sports, um, college sports at both the NAIA and the NCAA Division I uh, level. Uh, I've served as a, as a college athletic director and it's just really been around sports my entire life, working with coaches and student athletes and parents. So I uh, hope to share with you some of those experiences. I'm also joined by my esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Holly Haynes, uh, is a professor of psychology and biblical counseling here at Trip McConnell University. She has over 25 years working in higher education and has a vast, uh, a vast experience uh, working with athletics and currently serves as the faculty athletic representative here at, uh, at TMU. Also joined by Dr. Rick Fowler, a professor of psychology and biblical counseling here at Trip McConnell University. Uh, Rick has over 30,000 hours of counseling and also has experience as a college head coach and currently serves as a sports psychologist. So just a wealth of, of experience and talent, and we want to share some of that, some of those experiences with you. And to get started, um, we're going to talk about uh, sports psychology. And, and as we get into that, I do want to tell you that the purpose of this podcast uh, in addition to the, the, the reason that we wrote the book, Counting the Cost, Raising and Coaching Elite Athletes, is really to assist parents and coaches on the necessary multifaceted factors that go into the development of an individual that has the potential to become a star athlete. So throughout these series, this podcast series, we're going to be referring to that book quite a bit uh, and, and you know, intermingling some, um, some personal anecdotes in there as well. So to get us started, let's define sports psychology, uh, why it's important, why it's relevant. Uh, and Dr. Haynes, if you want to get us started on that. Feel free to call me Holly Stacy. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, actually, uh, the, the sport is really interesting. And I think, uh, or sports psychology, the evolution of sports psychology is fascinating. Um, you have folks who are working in sports and you had, of course, um, psychologists. But I think what has really helped the field is the evidence that has been provided by folks like Carol Dweck in terms of how we think. So cognition, cognitive psychologists who are beginning to study um, how we can best leader lives, motivational psych, then marrying that, of course, with counselors who are interested in mental performance and how that affects athletic performance. And it was very performance-driven at the beginning. However, um, now we're not just looking at performance. We're, we're looking at all the factors that can influence performance. And so there are a variety of them that can. And so you have everything, of course, from how a person responds to injury uh, to what happens with athletes who have a number of learning disabilities. So there are different ways of thinking about sport psychology, um, and it is an evolving field. There's a lot of work out there, and you'll see it line up along you know, multiple areas as well, and we'll cover that throughout our podcast. But Rick, do you want to give sure. some highlight uh, on yours? <laughs> so we start with the term sport psychology. There's two words there, sport and psychology. And so what this is doing is, 
merging together the two disciplines, uh, the methodology of the sport, which is the X and O's, and then also the psychological insights that can set a player apart from other athletes. Uh, so what we look at is uh, we see a culture today that uh, it seems it's out of balance. And so our goal in writing this book is to help uh, parents and coaches understand as they're, as they're trying to train these uh, potential lead athletes how to develop a balance in their life using the psychological dimension. Uh, when I was growing up 100 years ago, it seems like, uh, I remember many of my coaches would never even let, let us have water breaks because that was considered to be wimpy. Uh, the athletic culture of yester year was more simplistic than it is today. Uh, you know, there was no computers, cell phones, party line phones we had, and only had three TV black and white channels to watch. You know, still kind of making me age and where we are, which meant that nothing had to compete against sport participation. So, uh, like in the summertime, uh, uh, I remember all the games that we were together with, we'd play like tennis in the morning, and then in the afternoon we'd go into somebody's uh, garage and play table tennis for several hours, and then in the evening we'd put lights out at our house and play basketball for about three hours. Mm -hmm. And that, if we didn't do that, what would we do? Nothing. Yeah. And so nothing was there to, to distract us from sports, and so we developed a... A, a way to look at things uh, differently than they are today. There's so, so many distractions that to raise a, an, an elite athlete today is so much different than it was when, uh, when I was growing up uh, years ago. But uh, as we look at this idea of sports psychology, it's that the ability to look at how a player thinks. Why, you know, how do you keep them from... If they're in a slump, how do you get them out of a slump? What are some psychological ways to deal? What goes in the mind, as Holly said, about anxiety and depression and things that, uh, other things. The, the, the world today is so complex for some of these kids that uh, it's hard for them to highly focus on what they're doing in, in sports. And so the need to develop it has just blossomed all over the, all over the, the world. I mean, Europe... Uh, uh, all these soccer teams in Europe have uh, on their staff uh, sports psychologists all over the place. And there's not an NFL team, an NBA team that doesn't have sports psychologists on their staff. Uh, a lot of them have many. Uh, if you have a football team, you may have three or four uh, psychologists that work specifically with athletes to get make sure their mind stays clear, focused, and how they deal with the external uh, stresses that they're dealing with. Yeah. You know, Rick, one of the when I think of sports psychology, I, I think of one of the, from a practical standpoint, that the success of elite level athletes, and, and, and maybe you know a little bit less than elite level athletes, mm -hmm. but certainly elite level athletes, I think their success really in, in a lot of ways comes down to what I call fractional advantages. Mm -hmm. And meaning, you know, uh, a fraction of an inch, a fraction of a second, mm -hmm. uh, a fraction of, of a loss of their focus, mm -hmm. you know, fractional advantages. And I think the reason the sports psychology has blossomed the way it has in the marketplace, the marketplace being the sport industry, is because the coaches and the elite level athletes realizing that they need to find that fractional advantage from somewhere other than the traditional training regimes, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, 
it's working. I mean, you know, sports psychology can give them those fractional advantages to help them be more successful. That's an interesting piece on the fractional advantage because in many ways, we also have more access to this data, right? So I can go to Google and I can pull up I can, I can enter and say how to train an elite athlete in their books that I can read, their other pieces. If I have that at my hands, then what do I do? How do I interpret that? And a sports psychologist, right, a sports psychologist, a mentor, any sort of coach that has this background can help me with that fractional advantage. I can do something that's just a little bit different than someone else uh, who may not have the access to or is not looking that up. And I think the other thing is um, that you're bringing up that both of you have mentioned in this notion of also fractional advantage, but couching it also in the culture, right? You've mentioned that there's a reason that we're doing this. We want to create these elite athletes. And I think something has changed also in our culture. We're generationally very different. You know, I, I, I'm not as old as Rick, but, but I can also. <laughs> Nobody's as old. In the summer, I was actually, you know, we were out. We were outdoors. We were running. We used to run races in the backyard. We also used to run around the house and see yeah. who could, you know, do it in the shortest time. And so we were out here doing our own Olympics, right? We lived in a cul-de-sac. We had mul- multiple things that we were doing. And it was funny because my neighbors, they were soccer players. We happened to be uh, not so much soccer players by default, but my, you know, definitely we were very athletic and, and runners. But it was it was interesting. It was free play. There was a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. Now we've gotten down to prescribing, yeah. right? And so yeah. we're prescribing if we do these things, if you do these things, this will be helpful. But our kids' lives are structured. And so for my youngest, who is 12, um, you know, this summer he'll go and he'll he'll train for a certain amount of time with a trainer. Then he'll do X, Y, and Z. And we do require some just free play but there are a lot of kids his age group who'll train and train and train and train all day long and really not have time to be a child right and so we are seeing two generations coming up that probably have a little bit more pressure (coughs) on them in that gen z gen alpha and just to clarify for our audience meaning those kids who are in middle school and younger as well as up to 25. So We talk yeah. about that a lot in the book when we get into cross-training yeah. and burnout yeah. prevention and rest and the athlete mm-hmm. and that kind of thing because I see I don't want to get too far off track right. here <laughs> from just opening up our, our podcast series. But uh, the cross-training, the creativity and free play, I think is so critical in re- actually reaching that optimal <coughs> performance. Uh, because if you do the same regimented thing over and over mm-hmm. and over, you just mm-hmm. get burned out and bored. Right. I mean, life right. happens and you just get bored. Right. And later on in the book, I think, um, I can't remember which tra- chapter it is, but I actually talk about entrapment. Right. I don't know if y'all remember that, where mm-hmm. kids, you know, they, they, they have so much invested in their sport and they, they feel those outside pressures on them that they're defined as by what sport they play, that they feel entrapped in the sport, that they're not able to step out and have the free play, step out and have the creativity, Mm -hmm. step out and do cross-training, that they're just, they have to, you know, uh, grind and grind and grind, and that just wears on you. So sports psychology, coming back to what we're talking about, (laughs) can help you avoid entrapment 
and, and understand what that is and, and maybe prevent it. But the younger child, the younger athlete, doesn't have the logical resources to sort a lot of that out. Yeah. And so as a result... Nor do the parents. Nor do the parents. And, and the parents are just uh, mimicking other parents yeah. who say, you know, this is what you have to do. And, and honestly, not all coaches do either. Uh-huh. Not all coaches are able or want to see uh, uh, those situations developing because it might, you know, it might reflect poorly on, on their right. coaching uh, one of the things that I've noticed too is a lot of coaches still are coaching from the old school model like that I was raised in. And so you find a, an athlete today that is, uh, doesn't think that way and is not rewarded that way. You know, the, uh, uh, and that way being, when you say that way, meaning... Well, so they're not rewarded the way that the old... When my coaches would reward it, I remember they told me, uh, like in basketball, we had even if I had a free layup, mm-hmm. I had to have we had to have five passes before we would shoot. Oh yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, if you go to the board and shoot without uh, you know because you had an open layup, you know, and a coach still thinks you need to pass it five times, you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so these kids are are saying there's a lot of. Uh, Problematic areas in their brain are saying, "So who am I? How do I do this? I, I had a free free shot, but I couldn't make it, and all that kind of thing." Yeah, that's I don't. I actually have some stories about that, but we can address later in the series. Because <laughs> that one thing drives me nuts sometimes when you see a coach say that you have to stick to the offense, even though you got a, a wide open yeah. shot. You have. I thought the purpose of an of a offense in basketball was to generate open shots. Yeah. So why would you pass up an open yeah. shot? Anyway, right. We can talk about that later. There you go. <laughs> but so they get depression. You know, there's a lot of depression on athletes. I see mm-hmm. a lot of athletes every year, and they come mm-hmm. to my office, and they're either anxiety or depression or just hitting them great uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when they're depressed, their brain is not a functioning in a relaxed Format so therefore that causes tension, which causes stress, which causes them to miss the shot or whatever. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and the coaches can't understand why they're in a slump and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, one uh, finding by a major university uh, athletic uh, psychologist said that only ten percent of college athletes uh, struggling with their mental health ever reach out for help. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, and so, so all of these things go to, together to cause difficulty, and really the production of their of their play is decreased because of these uh, factors. And a lot of times, even on a college level, even Division One college levels, that's supposedly are well funded. The student athlete doesn't have anywhere to go to mm-hmm. address these issues. Mm-hmm. The athletic trainer typically. Is they, most just, of it. they they yeah, yeah. get a lot of that because a lot of times they'll develop relationships with the players, uh, but they may tell the coach and, and it, it, they, there may not be a real trust factor there. The um, the strength and uh, uh, strength and conditioning coach may or may not be that person. The, the student athlete may not feel that they have a good relationship with the coach, and if they address those issues with the coach. Uh, for example, if they feel like they're being, they've got some overtraining issues, uh, I mean, the coach might think negatively of them. So there's really just, a lot of times there's not that outlet to address some of the issues we're discussing. Right. 
Yeah, and I think we, at the time of this recording, were three years post-pandemic. And as much as we, as much as who has stated the pandemic is over, and um, the, we have the residual effects of the pandemic. And so part of, part of also um, this issue is that our young people um, have higher rates of depression and anxiety in general. That's not without athletics uh, being a component of it. But, um, you know, here, depression rates among college students have gone up 30% in the past three years. That's uh, a lot. That's right. a big number. Yeah. Right. Right. So we have to take these factors into consideration as well. And I think it brings light to the need also to address that aspect, the mental health aspect, because a lot of sports psychology initially just dealt with mental performance. If you can think a particular way, you will succeed. But we haven't taken into consideration other aspects of sports, uh, mental, sorry, psychology and mental health or well-being, overall emotional well-being, and how that influences how we think and behave. Mm-hmm. Well, which leads us to the next part, you know, so quite frankly, Coaches want to win. Players want to win, and so winning is an ad. It is we're not just to play to play, uh, especially if you're going to develop an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. And so, for uh, sports psychologists have come up with this kind of a pyramid, uh, a success pyramid, to determine how how uh, a player, you know, what a player needs to achieve in order to become elite. And so, in today's culture, a team really cannot be successful, or an athlete uh, athlete cannot be successful unless uh, he or she integrates what we call a threefold dimension to their sport, which includes genetic input, left brain input, and right brain input. So, Holly, what what, what do you think the genetic input uh, is necessary in order to become successful as an athlete? Well, I think this one is a little controversial. <laughs> I think this one is a little controversial. I think that there has been a push to look at genetics, right? Um, so, the idea that you have parents who are athletic, I think you have folks um, who, what we're hearing now, you have former professional athletes who are marrying other athletes. They were high collegiate level athletes with the intention of producing kids who are these super athletes. However, we know from beforehand that really um, you can actually take two folks who may not have been athletes, uh, you know, and you can see some athletic pieces uh, come out of those children as well, or they didn't participate um, here. And I think that is something that is very interesting in terms of this notion of genetics um, driving your athleticism. But we've also had books written about, you know, uh, certain populations not being able to swim, um, fast twitch muscles, um, the development of all of those pieces. But some of that comes from our scientific literature on that as well. I think a lot of times when we look at genetic predisposition, it has to do with things like muscle mass and physiology of um, Mm -hmm. a child. But where we have to be slightly careful in that is to remember that not all genes are expressed and then also that environment can shape the expression of genes, right? So you can, you know, uh, you can train the body in different ways. I also think you do need to think, you, you maybe sometimes we do need to think about genetics. So... In terms of physiology, right? So physiology, right, what, what right. did we come, come into the world with? What is this expression? Um, what's our mindset going in, mm-hmm. right? And interestingly enough, um, 
you know, my husband's not very tall. I'm short. My husband was a swimmer. <laughs> my husband was a short swimmer, defying all genetic right. predisposition um, there, Division One uh, swimmer. But when our children were being raised, that was one question, right? When we had children, he wanted, he thought about what sports are good for kids who will be short. Um, <laughs> this was actually a conversation. This was a conversation we had. This was a conversation. Because he was, as, as somebody who was a short person who's under six feet in a field where being six feet and taller, you know, he's a butterflyer. Like, so it was the matter of he either had to be very, very, very quick mm-hmm. or, um, but nothing is going to outdo the fact that, you know, somebody with a bigger wingspan, he swam against Lenny Kraselberg wow. in training. So it But there was, are, you make a good point there. I, I think there, there are no doubt, and I call it a baseline of talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to have a baseline yes. mm-hmm of genetic and, 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 you know, born with talent in a lot of these, to be an elite athlete mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of times. But I think there are other, you can adjust, you can evolve. Yes. Like mm-hmm. you just said, he had, he had to learn yes. to be quicker. You, <laughs> yes. you can make adjustments for a, I don't want to say, or a lack of, mm-hmm. of, of certain genetic or, or predisposition physical attributes, mm-hmm. but... Um, I, I think a lot of it is grit, too. I don't think we're talking right. about grit. Old-fashioned, this is how bad I want it. Right. But even then, you have to. there is still a baseline. There is a baseline. You have to have a baseline. Right. But as, once you have that baseline past that, there's varying degrees of athletic attributes. Yeah. But grit can make up for a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then evolving your technique can make up for a lot of it as well. Right, right. But you still, at the elite level, you still have to have that baseline. Right. You do. Um, in fact, I do think that that is probably a problem for parents, right? They put their kid, and unfortunately a lot of kids put their kid, their children in soccer. And I don't know if you've ever been to a four-year-old soccer game, U6 as it's called, um, where parents are overly, you know, they're in the middle of the field trying to get their child to kick a ball or to run or to to do these things. But then also within soccer, as it evolves, those who are more predisposed, who are better runners, who are more coordinated because of the nature of the sport, those are the ones that move a little bit further. And, you know, that can have some, some difficulty for parents recognizing, well, maybe my kid doesn't have the athleticism right. to compete in this. But they have to sport. learn that. Yeah. So yeah. that U6 league or, and, and other like levels, that's part of that, that, that learning process for the parent and the student athlete. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens if you try to force a fit as the child gets older? That can be very problematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned uh, uh, about the idea of gut and so forth. Well, that gets into the next two parts when mm-hmm. we talk about left brain input or right mm-hmm. brain input. Mm-hmm. Uh, your left brain input, you know, it's the a lot of it comes from the prefrontal cortex, you know, where they, our logic is, our reasoning, our goaling, how we're learning things. And, and that, that is kind of what we're, the, uh, the area of where you learn your X's and your O's and how you do things and you do this and this happens and so forth. And then the, the right brain can be even the limbic system. It's the reward system. It's the idea of how you relax and, and what you think about your intrinsic motivation. I think one of the things that is, I've counseled many, many athletes who had great talent, but if they don't have intrinsic motivation, does mm-hmm. not dominate them, 
they don't normally become successful. If they're extrinsically motivated, they're pushed by outside events. And so these outside events, well, okay, mom and dad make me do this. But then when they have the opportunity, they back off. That's why we're going to talk about it in another podcast about, what is it, uh, a majority of kids, by the time you get to 13, 70, 80% of the kids have already quit sports because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so you, you, you help the left brain parents and coaches to understand things that they can't logically put process to begin with, but then you reward, the, the reward comes from all of the, the right brain input, uh, ability to rebound after a loss of a mistake or mental game readiness, uh, all those things, there's, it seems like all the athletes that I've evaluated over the years, that, that those are factors that almost innate themselves and in how they respond to things. Great. Would you say that without intrinsic motivation, it would be very very difficult, if not impossible, for someone to come up Yeah. Uh, illustration, my brother was six foot three in the seventh grade, and so every basketball team wanted him. Uh, and so he, he didn't really have that intrinsic motivation, and it was pushed because of his size. Uh, <clears throat> Sports Illustrated wrote about him, other kind of stuff. He had offers after college to go to play. Pro- he just burned out. He didn't have because he didn't have that intrinsic I think he got motivation. Out. With, without intrinsic motivation, I think you'd lack, you lack. I'm going to say it differently. Intrinsic motivation, in my opinion, fuels the grit. Right. That you, you have to have grit to be an elite athlete. And intrinsic motivation fuels, fuels the good grit. Point. Case good in point. point, Michael Jordan. Case in point, Wayne Gretzky. You know, all the, all the, the great athletes in their sports, uh, Serena Williams. I mean, all the great athletes in their sport, uh, uh, Tom Brady have that intrinsic motivation. You look at the athletes I just mentioned, they're multi, multi, multi-millionaires. So what drives them? Money? No. is to be the best they can be. Yeah. That's an internal motivation that fuels their grit that pushes them to keep working to get better. But is that an American concept? And I only, I only say that because we talk a lot about intrinsic motivation, but our... In 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 my favorite sport, soccer, um, there are the best in the world. Some might say it's intrinsic, but a lot of them were motivated. You know, Brazilian athletes often they're coming out of the favelas and they are motivated to get out and to take people with them. It's a it's a way to get their families out of a particular situation, mm. and so that the motivation comes. Because of this, this is this is something that's happening right now in conversations about American soccer. The fact that most of the kids who play American soccer come from families that are comfortable. And the right. fact that maybe we haven't produced this world-renowned player. I mean, Christian Pulisic is up there. Um, but we haven't produced this world-renowned player because our players don't come from the same type of gritty poverty that so many other players uh, come from. Serena Williams' father... Even though they were able to afford living in a nicer area, move them into the inner city so that they would want to get out in many ways. Like the encouragement for all of the kids and all of their children did really well. The idea was like getting out of poverty. But that was to start the process. 
Mm-hmm. But to maintain the process, mm-hmm. there's something different, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking. I, 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 yeah. I think, you know, because a lot of our research, and I agree, intrinsic motivation is key. I don't think extrinsic motivation only, but I, I think in sport, I'm very curious. I would love to study yeah. the difference between an athlete that has, I would love to study the children of these basketball players, right? Now we have these star elite basketball players whose kids are now at the stage where they're going to be in the NBA or they are in the NBA or they are preparing to be in the NBA. Are they more successful? And what, because they've got to be intrinsically motivated, right? right, To get through. They have everything, they have everything they need. Can you imagine the pressure on like somebody like Ronnie? Ronnie I would not want to be that poor kid. The pressure that's on him, no matter, he could be a 10 time, uh, all NBA selection, and he won't be as good as his dad. I mean, think of that, that pressure. Yeah. I mean, that's just brutal. It is. <laughs> and he has a little brother come behind him. So, <laughs> but, so but yeah. So, anyway, so I, I think, you know, again, we have to realize as individuals, all, everybody, it, the Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes. And an elite athlete doesn't have any more worth than a non athlete. Our abilities are God-given, and how we develop those athletes is up to us. And uh, I just feel, uh, as we go through these podcasts, that we look at the whole concept of coaching and playing athletes, and that that we keep up, keep the idea of balance in mind, so that we mm-hmm. we don't overemphasize yeah. it or we don't underemphasize yeah. it. You yeah. know, as we go through. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, this wraps up our first session, uh, our first podcast. We will be back uh, shortly with the next one, and I hope that you join us throughout our series. It's uh, been a pleasure uh, being with you. See you again.